Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. A little bit of follow-up from our last episode. One thing that I completely blanked on when I was discussing Maker Central was meeting Dominic Morrow. He is a maker. He, uh, his company makes laser cutters. He was an exhibitor at Maker Central. And I ran into him because he was wandering around with some headphones on and uh, another guy beside him and they were talking. Uh, they had mics on their headphones and they were talking to each other and they had an audio engineer with them and I'm kind of curious about what was going on. And his audio engineer looks over at our table and sees the postcards I had made up, John designed for us for the podcast. And he says, oh, a podcast for makers. And so they stopped and, and Dominic chatted for a couple of minutes and we recorded a, l- a little segment for his podcast. His podcast is the Bricolage podcast. We'll uh, make sure we put a link in the show notes for that. And he's uh, been interviewing makers over the last little while and uh, put up a few really good episodes. And uh, so we'll, we'll link to that. I don't know when he's going to put up uh, the content that, uh, that he and I recorded there. And since I'm going to be back in his part of the world later on in the year, in September, uh, we've sort of tentatively decided to try and meet up again and, and see if we can record a little bit. But uh, yeah, I just want to give a quick shout out to Dominic and the Bricolage podcast. And uh, we had a, a good chat for about 20 minutes at the uh, at the show. I'll, we'll make sure that we mention it and uh, put a link in the show when I actually get a link to the episode that we recorded. Another bit of follow-up from our last episode, we were talking about the Goldsmiths Hall and the term hallmarking. And while we said that the Company of Goldsmiths was originally founded in 1327, the hall didn't require people bring their pieces to be assayed at the hall until 1478. So it was actually quite a while before they realized that they couldn't uh, continue to go door to door and actually check on all the pieces. Uh, so 1478 is when the first assaying office was set up at the Goldsmiths Hall in London. And that's when the term Hallmark began its uh, its use in English. Yes, I still find it fascinating that that's <laughs> where the, yeah. the term Hallmarking came from. It's obvious in hindsight. Yeah, it's a remarkable history when you consider the length of continuous use that uh that that assaying office has been through so absolutely remarkable they're still they're still doing it today so welcome back home again how do you like the hospitality at pearson airport uh i'm i'm okay with the hospitality at pearson it's air canada that i'm not particularly happy with these days i just came back from the santa fe symposium in albuquerque new mexico and on my return flight, I had a, a weird flight back. I went through Houston and then Toronto and then Ottawa. I arrived in Toronto about three hours before my flight was supposed to leave to Ottawa. And normally that wouldn't bother me so much, but my flight to Ottawa was supposed to leave at half past midnight. So I wanted to try and get on an earlier flight and Air Canada was having none of that. They said, nope, sorry, you, you can't get on a plane that your luggage isn't on and we can't get your luggage on the earlier flight. So you're going to have to wait around. So I sat at the Air Canada lounge for a few hours and availed myself of their chips and dip, which is uh, not particularly exciting. 
and uh, got home at, uh, I guess, around 2 o'clock in the morning because, of course, our flight was delayed leaving and found out that my luggage wasn't actually on the same plane that I was. Turns out that it had never left Houston. So I wasn't particularly happy when I found out that I had uh, waited around in, uh, in Toronto for a few extra hours when I could have been at home and sleeping instead. Hmm. That wasn't particularly fun. The joys of international travel. So how was the symposium? Uh, the symposium was great. This is one of those events that is so useful on so many different levels. Everything from meeting other people and, and networking with other people in the industry to the great information that's going on at the talks to just being able to spend time with friends and, and do some fun and exciting things. So overall, the whole symposium was amazing. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we did and some of the talks that we had. But yeah, overall, just a, an absolutely amazing time. So how many years is it that you've attended this symposium now? Uh, this is my second year. Uh, I was a speaker last year for on my first trip, and I'm a speaker again this year. And as I found out, Janet Halderman, she's the uh, amazing woman who ends up editing all these papers that we write and is the one who sort of organizes who's going to be a speaker and when people are speaking and things like that. And I found out that she's already penciled me in for a talk next year. So she's kind of got my number now. It's it's tough to say no at this point. So I suspect I'm going to be a, a speaker again next year as well. Is that something you're looking forward to? Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I think I've got a I think I've got an interesting idea for next year's talk. It'll be a, a little bit different than what I've done the last few years. Uh, the last few years, I've been speaking about Niello and discussing both the historical context of it and making it, and also some experiments with making a more modern version of it. So. It's been a very technical sort of how-to that's directed towards people who are actively making. But uh, I think next year I've got a slightly different topic in mind, and uh, we'll, ha we'll have to see if I can pull it off. So I've got, got some ideas for next year already. So what specifically about Niello did you cover in this year's talk? Uh, most of the, our listeners probably aren't going to know what that is. It's a silver alloy that's been used traditionally for the last 3,500 years or so. And it's a, a black metal that you inlay into another metal. So for instance, you could inlay it into bronze as the Romans did, or you could inlay it into silver and gold like I do. And it provides a really great contrast metal against whatever your base object is. So it looks, you know, you get this, this beautiful black contrast with it. And unlike a lot of other ways of getting a black surface, this isn't just a surface finish. This isn't a, a patina or some sort of surface treatment. This color goes all the way through the metal, which ends up making it uh, very ideal for anything that involves any kind of wear, uh, any type of handling and things like that, where it's possible for the, the surface treatment to rub off. Traditionally, Niello has been made with lead as one of the alloying metals. And it was alloyed with lead to help lower the melting temperature of the metal. The way that you inlay Niello into another metal is that you're actually going to melt it in and you're going to fuse it in place. And you want the melting temperature to be to be much lower than the base material, obviously. You don't want to have a, uh, you know, let's say a pendant or a brooch or something like that. And you're inlaying the, the Niello into it and the silver ends up uh, melting or the gold or whatever it is you've made the brooch out of. So the, the lead helps lower that melting temperature to a point where you can actually apply it. 
But of course, there are all sorts of problems with using lead. And so this year's paper is always all about getting the lead out of the niello and making a safer alternative. So safer, not just for the maker, but also for the people who are using it. Uh, in many countries, like for instance, the EU, you're not allowed selling any jewelry that has lead in it in any form. Uh, so that causes problems for people who want to use niello but are unable to because it has lead in it and they can't uh, they can't sell it in the EU or the UK or anywhere like that. So yeah, this year's paper was all about getting that lead out of the niello and and finding alternatives to that lead. Now, is there anyone else who has attempted to eliminate lead from niello as well, or is this an area of the field that you're very much a, a pioneer in? The early days of making niello were completely without lead. And so there, there were lead-free versions of, of niello very, very early on. What the Egyptians and the Romans were using had silver and copper in it. But the problem with that was the melting temperature of it was much too high. And that causes all sorts of problems. I won't get into the, the weeds on it too much, but it creates issues when you're trying to apply niello when the melting temperature is too high. The trick was to get niello, or get a niello that has no lead and but still has something in it that's that's going to lower the temperature. I know that there have been some experiments in Thailand on replacing the lead, and Thailand being one of the few places now where niello is still actively used by the jewelry industry. It's it's continued to remain a part of their tradition, their jewelry tradition for uh, for most of that time. And I believe they've experimented with using tin as a replacement for lead. While I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to do it, I know that I've done a fair bit of research into this now and certainly done a lot more experimentation than anybody else I've read about. Uh, now, of course, there's probably a lot of people doing work on in Thailand on this that I just don't know about. Uh, but I have read a few papers now that, that have sort of touched on it and have seen some of their experiments. But uh, not not a lot compared to what I've done so far. And how successful have your experiments been thus far? Uh, they've been pretty good. There's certainly not a perfect replacement for Niello with LeadNet. The lead version of Niello is certainly the gold standard at this point. It's been the nicest in terms of working with. It has a very low melting temperature. The formula that I have is very black and very easy to work with. So that that's one of the challenges with uh, with it is that the replacements that I've come up with are pretty good and people who don't know any better and certainly don't have a comparison against the uh, the other one probably wouldn't notice the difference between them. But for people who know the difference, it, it certainly does stand out as being a little bit lighter in color than it's sort of a, a very, very dark gray as opposed to being a nice black. Did you present a specific recipe for Niello at, at the symposium or did you present several variants that you've been working on? Yeah, this year's talk was sort of a little bit of follow-up from last year. So I, I covered a few of the things that I covered last year, but in more detail. And I also did some new material as well. The follow-up had to do primarily with the application methods. I had more videos this time around of the application of Niello and how to make it and how to apply it and everything like that. And those are videos that I'm I'm going to put together. Right now, they're just audio-less videos that have been sort of broken up into a couple of different pieces. So I'm going to put those together and narrate them, and I'll probably put them up on YouTube for people to see. Uh, since seeing that stuff in sort of in a video is uh, is very helpful, and it certainly makes things easier to uh, to know what's going on. 
And then the new content that I had in there primarily revolved around the experiments that I was doing. So while I didn't discuss the exact details in my in my talk, uh, those are in my paper, and that paper will go up online and be available for free on the Santa Fe Symposium website. So if you want to read that paper, you can uh, you can read the details. And in there, I tried using four different metals to replace lead. I basically looked around the periodic table near the, near lead to see what was there. And I had a few criteria for what I was looking for. Obviously, I wanted something that wasn't toxic. If you were dealing with something that is toxic, then that doesn't really help. And in fact, some of the things that are around lead on the periodic table are much nastier than lead is. So I, I wanted to avoid that. It obviously needed to be something that was reasonably available. You know, you don't want to put something that's extremely difficult to find or very, very rare. So I tried to avoid any of any element that was sort of rare and expensive or difficult to get a hold of. And then it also needed to be something that could lower the temperature of the alloy. So it needed to have a relatively low melting temperature in and of itself. Now, I know that there are metallurgists out there who would probably look at my choices and say, well, there was no way that was ever going to work because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, but obviously, I don't have a metallurgy background. So this was pure experimentation in my part. So what were the four elements that you ultimately settled on? I ended up using indium, bismuth, gallium, and tin as my alternatives. And each of them met with either complete failure or varying levels of success, depending on what I was doing with it. So it was an interesting choice in terms of, you know, which ones worked, which ones didn't. The gallium was a complete failure, which is a bit of a disappointment. Honestly, I would have loved to have a ex good excuse to keep gallium around in the shop. Uh, if you've never played with gallium, it's actually uh, liquid at room temperature. So it looks like mercury at room temperature. You can hold it in your hand and sort of roll it around and it's, it is liquid. And it kind of freaks people out if you start playing with that in your hand because they think it's uh, mercury. But it isn't. It's, uh, it's gallium. And uh, so gallium was a complete failure. It didn't turn black at all. Uh, but I had varying levels of success with the other three. And ultimately, I ended up using a tin-based alloy for it. And the tin-based alloy was actually pretty good. I was I was reasonably happy with the results that I got out of it. And I think with some more experimentation, I can improve it even more. Uh, the biggest part of it being I need to lower the temperature more. It's, it's existing melting temperature is still a little bit too high for my liking. So I'd like to be able to lower that temperature a little bit and get a little bit more copper into it. Uh, the copper facilitates the niello becoming blacker. The more copper I can put in there, the better. But of course the more copper that's in there, the higher the melting temperature of the alloy because copper has a very high melting temperature itself. So is the tin recipe for Niello that you came up with entirely unique or was it influenced in any way by some of what you were aware of coming out of Thailand? Uh, this one's entirely unique to me as far as I know, at least it, it, if someone else is using a similar alloy, it's unknown to me. I created this through experimentation playing around with some of the proportions a little bit to see what worked and what didn't. I started using the recipe that I had last year that I was making using my lead niello. So basically I just did a one-to-one -one replacement lead for tin and that worked out poorly. The melting temperature wasn't nearly low enough. That caused me a lot of problems. So I went back to first principles and created a silver copper alloy that had a very low melting temperature or at least as low a melting temperature as you can get with silver and copper. 
and that works out to being around 72% silver and the balance being copper. And then I started adding my alternate metals to that to try and lower the melting temperature even more. You know, again, that, that worked out reasonably well in different, uh, depending on which metal it was. And uh, some of them, like indium, didn't lower the temperature very much at all. Uh, so I stopped using indium early on. Uh, but the bismuth and the the tin, I think, have a good ch- chance of being alternatives. And I think mixing a little bit of bismuth in with the tin would actually be helpful. It has a much lower melting temperature than tin, and it is used in electronics, actually, to create low-melting solders with uh, with tin. So I, I think I may end up with some combination of the two metals together to actually lower the temperature a little bit and see what uh, see what happens. So what went wrong with the indium and the gallium? Uh, in the case of the gallium, it didn't turn black at all. Uh, what's happening with this is I'm... I'm calling this a metal alloy, but it really isn't. It's a a metal sulfide that you're creating. And you're mixing sulfur in with these metals. Those sulfides become very black. And in this case, uh, gallium does not form a sulfide that is black if it does form a sulfide at all. I'm not sure. I'd have to talk to a metallurgist, not someone who just plays at being a metallurgist, to find out whether it actually forms a sulfide or not. But I don't believe it does. Uh, so that that's the problem with the gallium is that it it ends up being a gray as opposed to a black and a very light gray at that. You can see the difference basically between the silver and the and the gallium based yellow. Uh, there is enough of a color difference that you can see it, but it's not uh, not enough that you can do anything useful with it. So you still at least get a contiguous alloy out of it. It's just that it's not black. It's not like it turns into a, a, a oozing monster of. <laughs> metal goop no 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 it it does become a, a continuous alloy and it is something that you could I, presumably you could use it for something if you really wanted to it is a lower temperature metal than silver is for instance so i guess if you you had something like gold you could conceivably inlay this into gold to create some contrast uh, but it isn't nearly as white as silver so it's not going to look all that great I, I don't know that there's really much use for it in this case i don't know that there's much that you could actually do with it and then the indium? Yeah, the indium one, the problem there was the temperature. I, I just couldn't use the, I couldn't get the temperature low enough with the indium to make it usable. And by that, I mean, it needs to get below 650 degrees Celsius and have, and it needs to be flowing lower than 650 degrees Celsius. And the reason for that is because the metal sulfides you've created start breaking down at around 650. So if you have to heat it up well above 650 to get it to flow properly, you're going to do a lot of damage to the sulfides and, and it's going to look, it's not going to look very good. Uh, you're going to have porosity problems and everything like that in it. So the key is you need to make sure you get it down low enough so that you can actually inlay it and apply it properly. And to the best of my knowledge, indium is quite a, a rare metal as well. So that doesn't quite fit in your, your top mm-hmm. criteria there. You're right. It was the most expensive of the lot of them. It was even more expensive than gallium was. And it is it is quite rare these days. Well, I shouldn't say it is rare, but it's it's used in a lot of electronics these days. So I believe it's being used in um, mm-hmm. LCD panels and things like that as well. And, you know, that makes it quite valuable to other industries that, that need it in large quantities. So, yeah, indium is not the ideal metal, but... You know, I figure for the amount of it that we were making, 
most of this stuff, you know, most of these pieces that we're making have a huge amount of handwork being put into them. So if there is, in fact, you know, an expensive material that you have to put in there, it's not the end of the world. It's it's being offset quite a bit by the, the expense of the, the labor in there anyways. Uh, so, you know, in the end, the base material as well. Indium, while it's expensive, is still significantly less expensive than silver is, for instance, or, uh, you know, exponentially less expensive than gold. Interestingly, too, with the indium, if you actually mix the, the indium with tin, which you're also using, and then throw in a bit of oxygen, you end up if in a thin enough layer or sheet of it that actually is transparent. So it's complete opposite of, of what you're trying mm. to achieve, which is, is kind of fascinating. Because that's why they use it in the LCD panels. Indium tin oxide is, is the transparent sure. electrodes that uh, allow all these fancy phones and laptops and TVs to operate the way that they do. And in this case, it's not really pure indium, right? You're not dealing with the indium metal as it is. You're you're really dealing with mm. uh, the sulfide of indium. So that that changes the equation a little bit as well. So, anyways, it's uh it's an interesting process, and there have been a few people who've offered to give me some assistance with analyzing some of my pieces to see exactly what's going on. We're a bit curious to see what's happening at the interface between the base object and the yellow that you're fusing into it, uh, because there is a fusion bond that's happening there. So we're a little bit curious about what's happening there. Uh, we're also curious to see which type of crystals are forming in the niello because depending on what's being formed there there are ways that we may be able to influence the that crystal creation and change the way that the metal functions change the properties of it and uh, sort of experiment with it a little bit and if nothing else maybe try and optimize what's going on uh, so yeah it should be interesting there's certainly some more to come on this there's uh, i've got a few more ideas of things that i can do with it and I certainly by no means have the perfect recipe yet. That will take a little bit more experimentation and uh, and work before I get something that I'm I'm truly satisfied with. Now, is there anyone else who's at this symposium who dabbles in Niello or is an expert in Niello, or are you a bit of a, a lone ranger in that respect? Unfortunately, there are not a lot of people anymore in the Western jewelry world who are using Niello. As I said, there's still people in Thailand that are using it quite a bit. It is very popular in Thai jewelry. And there are a few places in Russia that still use it. Uh, although I haven't spoken to anybody or, or seen anything coming out of that group. Uh, I think it's quite small compared to the group in Thailand. I haven't spoken to a lot of people who've made it. The reaction I get when I talk to people about Niello, when I talk to Western jewelers about Niello, typically uh, range from, I have no idea what that is, to, oh, I read about that once in you know, Opie Untracked's book on jewelry technology 30 years ago. And I've never really thought about it since because it looked like a horrible thing to make and uh, a miserable process. So yeah, it's it's not something that very many Western jewelers are making. And then of course, with modern consumer laws, consumer protection laws around jewelry, anyone who's in the EU has completely dismissed the use of Niello just because it, it's not something that they could sell in, in Europe. So you know, it's it's something that hasn't seen a lot of attention lately, which is too bad because it's been one of the most commonly used techniques over millennia for decorating, you know, for decorating silver and gold 
and it's it's even been used as i said it's been used in bronze work as well earlier on and in the middle ages it was even being used as an inlay in armor so you had uh yellow and gold inlay in armor to uh, to do patterns on you know let's say a pal- hmm. pauldron on the shoulder or something like that so yeah, it's too bad that it isn't used more and part of the reason why i've given this talk is to try and promote its use and and see if i can get people using it again because it is uh it is a beautiful material yeah i've seen that on armor before i had no idea that that was niello yeah coincidentally the the first time that niello ever registered on my radar was more than a decade ago when i visited the worshipful company of watch and clockmakers guildhall museum which you just saw when you were in in london at the science museum there which we we touched on in our yeah. last episode and that's the, the first time that I ever read the word Niello and, and had it tied to an object. And it was mm. uh, on a number of the pocket watch cases that they had on exhibit there. Absolutely. there it, it was extremely common in decorative metalwork. And in fact, if you were living in, let's say, Florence in the Middle Ages, let's say you're in a 15th century Florence and you wanted to be a jeweler, you wanted to be a goldsmith of some sort, if you didn't know how to make niello and how to use niello, you were unemployable as a as a goldsmith. It was such a critical skill. It was being used in, in nearly everything at the time. So it's it's certainly something that that has seen a lot of use over the years, and it, it's really unfortunate that it doesn't see more use now. So hopefully, hopefully, it does uh, start to see more use. There were a few people who, uh, you know, suggested I should go around and, and try teaching at a couple of the jewelry schools in the states. So. We'll see what comes out of some of that. I'm uh, I'm certainly open to teaching it. So if you happen to be running a school that is interested in discussing, uh, you know, class on yellow work, um, certainly modern yellow work without lead in it, let me know. I'm I'm happy to discuss it because it, I think it's a worthwhile, a worthwhile technique, and it's a way that you can distinguish your designs from other people because it it is such a a unique look, and it creates this beautiful contrasty metal that you can't really get any other way. And that would certainly fit into your theme for the year as well. Absolutely. Got to keep sharing the knowledge, right? And your The videos you intend to release will be a, a, a solid step in that direction as well. And of course, this presentation that you just delivered fits squarely within the theme. Yeah, one of the things that I love about the Santa Fe Symposium is its dedication to trying to share knowledge in the industry and and trying to create a dialogue in the industry amongst the leaders in it. The Santa Fe Symposium was started 32 years ago by Eddie Bell. At the time, he owned Rio Grande, the jewelry tool supplier out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he wanted a place for sort of the best people in the industry to come together and be able to share their knowledge. So it's not just jewelers that are there. It's also business people that are there and uh, people in auxiliary industries as well. So you find casters there and refiners and things like that. Uh, so you end up with a really broad range of topics at these symposiums. Uh, one of the women who's been giving talks rec- you know, for the last several years, I think this was her seventh year doing that, was uh, Ann Miller. She works for IBM and she actually works on the Watson project with them. Uh, so she's given a number of talks over the years on how machine learning can assist with the jewelry industry. Uh, this year she was talking 
uh, a lot about predictive modeling for supply chains and how they're starting to use predictive modeling to be able to develop better supply chain models for for the industry, as well as uh, talking about IBM's blockchain technology for business. You get some really interesting stuff that that happens in there, and again, everything from people who are bench jewelers. You know, you get people like uh, like Phil Poirier and Peter Gilroy or Anne Cahoon, and they're practicing jewelers who are giving talks on very specific techniques and how to improve your your jewelry making using these techniques. Uh, you then end up with people like Dr. Chris Cordy, who was talking, he's a metallurgist, he's a retired metallurgist, so he talks, gives very technical talks about how the science of metallurgy works with regards to precious metals. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a it's a fascinating group of people, and if you're involved at all in the jewelry industry, uh, this is a great symposium to go to. You can learn so much. Even the talks that are may not be what you're interested in can be very fascinating. There's some really good information in them, and if nothing else, you get to meet some amazing people while you're there. Uh, there's there's a remarkable group of people that show up at this. So what we're some of the standout talks for you, apart from your own, of course. <laughs> well, of course, mine was was a standout talk. Uh, no, I, I enjoyed my talk. It was, I think, it went well better than last year. So, all jo- all joking aside, I think my talk did go did go very well this year, and it was re- well received by people. Uh, there were a few that that really stood out for me. There was uh, one by David Fletcher from Cooks and Gold in Birmingham. And another one by Damiano, and I can't remember his last name, from uh, ProGold in Italy. They were talking about uh, 3D printing in metals. So both of them were talking about selective laser melting in platinum metals and being able to do work in that. Uh, Dave had this absolutely remarkable uh, bracelet with him that was incredible. This thing was 3D printed as a single piece. and when you flipped it over, one side was 18 karat yellow gold, the other side was 18 karat white gold, and it was all fused as a single piece. So they they printed half of it and then changed out the uh, the printing medium, and then finished the second half. And it was printed as a single piece, but it was still flexible, so the whole piece could uh, you know could wrap around your wrist, and it, the movement in it was just gorgeous. So yeah, the the stuff that people are doing with that was uh, was amazing. So that was nice to see. Phil Poirier did a really good talk on straight line engine engraving at this symposium. He's been doing a series of talks over the last several years about various types of ornamental turning and guilloché work. Uh, so this year he was talking about he was talking about straight line work. Uh, now I'm only slightly biased since some of my work showed up in there and there was a video of me working in there, but <laughs> you know it was still it was still a good talk and it was it was interesting. It's nice to see again a very traditional skill that most jewelers, most modern jewelers don't know how it's done and being able to show that off and, and show what's going on in uh, you know, in videos and whatnot. So that was, uh, that was nice to see. And then certainly the best speaker of the symposium was the very last talk. And that was friend of the show, Matt Anderson. He works for Rio Grande and he's one of the business coaches there. He gave this great talk about how, they collaborate at Rio Grande, how they problem solve, how they are able to lead their team to being able to do the best work that they can. 
It was a fascinating talk. And this is something that's outside of just the jewelry industry. This can be used by anybody. It's not specific to to working inside of the industry. But th these kinds of talks are also very useful to us. We We tend to get focused on the jewelry specific stuff while we're there. But this talk about business in general, how to collaborate, how to problem solve, how to how to work through difficult business issues. Uh, it was a great talk. Fascinating to hear Matt uh, Matt talk, and he's such a great public speaker. So hopefully, hopefully we get to see him speaking outside of the Santa Fe Symposium. the The other nice thing about this symposium is that all of the papers from the symposium are made available online for free. So a few weeks from now, all of those talks will be available uh, for download. I shouldn't say the talks are available for download. The papers themselves are available for download. Uh, the talks are, are really only for those people who attend the, the symposium. So uh, the, even though the papers are excellent, it is certainly worthwhile seeing the talks themselves and, and seeing those in person. Now, you and Phil and, and some of the other speakers got to head down to Santa Fe a, a little bit earlier than the rest of the attendees for a special speakers trip. You want to share a little bit about what you guys got up to there? And one of the unique things about the Santa Fe Symposium is the speaker's trip. Now, for, for people who are attending the conference itself, the, the symposium, that starts on Sunday morning and goes until Wednesday at noon. But if you happen to be a speaker of the trip, then you get invited onto the speaker's trip ahead of time. And that typically starts on the Wednesday before the symposium. And then runs to Saturday when we then get to Albuquerque and get into the symposium itself. It is a bit of a unique experience compared to most most conferences in it, and it's certainly worthwhile. So the speakers are all invited to a city somewhere in the U.S. Uh, last year it was St. Louis. Uh, this year it was Albuquerque itself. They decided to stay in Albuquerque. And so the conference basically, you you fly in and the conference takes care of you, you know, and, and we do various things together. So we go to, you know, we do uh, some field trips together and things like that. And it's a chance to get the speakers together beforehand, you know, sort of give them a chance to meet each other and chat and, and be able to network a little bit before the symposium itself and, and, you know, sort of become comfortable with what's going on. It's also a great opportunity for people who've never spoken before to talk to people who have spoken before and get some, you know, get an idea of what the conference is going to be like or ask them how they should, if there's things that they should do when they're, uh, when they're talking, things they shouldn't do, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a really worthwhile, really worthwhile uh, trip. And one of the big pluses, if you, if you're ever thinking about submitting a paper to the symposium, this is one of the, the, the reasons to do it. In fact, as I was mentioning to somebody at the end of my trip, if, if I had to give up one of the two, if I had to give up either the symposium or the speaker's trip, I would give up the symposium for the speaker's trip in a heartbeat. It is, it is that good. It's, it's that worthwhile. So what are some of the things that you got up to as a, a group of speakers? Yeah, this year there was uh there were a few really good exhibits that we've, we've got to see. Uh, so the, the first thing that we did uh, first off, we, we stayed at uh, Los Poblanos Inn in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a fascinating inn that's there. Uh, it's a converted farm. Uh, in fact, it's still an active lavender farm now. That's what it was It was known for originally. And it is still a, an active farm today. 
And uh, it's a beautiful location, really, really nice place. If you're in Albuquerque and you're looking for somewhere to stay, Los Poblanos Inn, I can highly recommend. It was uh, it was a really good exhibit, a really good time there. Uh, but the first thing that we did, which was absolutely fascinating, was uh, we went in, up to Santa Fe and we went to this uh, exhibit. Well, I guess it's not an exhibit, it's a permanent location. It's called Meow Wolf, which, which sounds a little bit odd. Uh, and it is a bit odd. In fact, it's really, really odd. Uh, it's basically a an art installation that was created and it has a, a theme that goes through it and a narrative that goes through it. And it's this bizarre place that has, you know, all sorts of interesting art that people have created in it. And uh, I guess when you when you enter in, you know, you come, you go through the doors and there's this large house that's there. So there's a full-sized house that, that they've built in here. And, you know, there's a porch on the front. And if you look in the mailbox, you can start reading their mail and you can see what's going on. You can start following the narrative what's ha- of what's happening there. And as you go through this room, you know, through this, this house, there are all these clues about what's been happening there and, and whatnot. And it gets a little bit weird because you can do things like they recommend that you pry everything, you open everything, you look inside of everything, you read things, which is impractical on a first visit. I think they said there's something like 382 hours of material. If you sit down and read it all from start to finish, you're not going to read it all in one shot. But you, you know, you do things like you open the fridge door and you realize that it's actually a portal to another part of the, the exhibit. So you can crawl through the, the fridge and you end up in this basically in another world that they've created inside of this building. And there are a number of interesting portals like that that are there. There's some great um, interactive music exhibits and things. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can find a good link to post to it online. It's a truly bizarre experience, but it is worthwhile doing. I think they said they're opening up another one in Denver and one in Las Vegas over the next year or two. Uh, so if you happen to be anywhere near one of these, go and see it. it spend the morning. I know we spent about two hours in there, and, and we definitely didn't get through all of it. Uh, there were there were some rooms that uh, we were talking to f- to friends later, and they found rooms that we didn't find and stuff like that. So yeah, it was uh, a, a really weird experience, but it was certainly uh, certainly one of the most interesting experiences, art experiences I've had in years. So will you be entering your studio through a fridge anytime soon? <laughs> It is tempting. I'm I'm tempted to replace the, uh, maybe put the fridge up against the wall of my uh, my shop and uh, and turn that into a portal into my into my studio. That would be uh, that'd be a fun way of getting in and out of the studio. It might be a little challenging for getting tools in and out though. Yeah, yeah, especially some of the heavier things you've got kicking around in there. Yeah, although the fridge, to be honest, the fridge wasn't too bad because that you just had to sort of bend down a little bit. The one that was really awkward was the washing machine and trying to get down into that. You had to open that up and then you had to sort of hold on to the top edge and then swing your legs down and slide down the slide into the washing machine itself. So that was a, uh, that was an interesting time. Yeah. I can't imagine hoisting a straight line engine up through a, <laughs> a washing machine. No, no, that's not going to fit at all. Yeah. So were some other highlights from the speaker's trip? Yeah. The, you know, we went to a bunch of places. One of the other things that, that we, you know, everybody there loves great food. So we always end up at great restaurants and whatnot while we're there. We did go up Sandia peak, which is, uh, there's a tram that goes up the peak uh, that's just outside of Albuquerque, and I think it goes up to around ten thousand feet. Like beautiful views of the of the valley, 
and to, of Albuquerque itself. You know, beautiful scenery. They're, they're currently working on a new restaurant up there, so there was some construction going on up there. But it's a worthwhile visit up the peak if you happen to, uh, to be in the area. Uh, so that was nice to see. And then the probably the the real the real gem of this particular visit was Eddie Bell, who, as I said, he was the founder of Rio Grande and the founder of the Santa Fe Symposium. He lives in Albuquerque, and uh, he invited us all to his home for dinner one night. So we got a chance to see his home and see some of the the pieces that he's collected over the years. And uh, most importantly, see his workshop. Uh, so of course you've got uh, hmm. you know thirty five people or whatever that arrived at uh, at Eddie's house, and every one of us made a beeline for his workshop before uh, before anything else. Uh, so that was a an amazing chance to see some of his machines. You know, he's got a, a a nice modern machine shop in there, uh, but he also has things like a Holzapfel ornamental lathe. He has an arm brewster. Mark one, in fact, he has the very first arm Brewster Mark one ornamental lathe. So it was kind of nice to be able to see some of that stuff in person and be able to play with some of that stuff. Uh, Eddie also has a really nice car collection. He, he uh, restores very old cars. And uh, so it was kind of nice to see some of that as well. I can imagine. You've got the man who owned the company that supplied <laughs> most of North America with their jewelry making equipment. I can only imagine what it'd be like to see his workshop. Yeah, his uh, his shop is pretty impressive. He's uh, he's got some fun toys in there. Yeah, just just remarkable work that he's got in there, and a huge workshop. I'm so envious of the the size of his space. He has, he has this beautiful open workshop, which is nice. Uh, the other thing that was kind of fun. I was telling him my stories about being at the Goldsmiths Company the previous week, and so he uh, brought me up into his office, and he was showing me this uh, this little collection of punches that he had uh, he had been there a few years ago and in fact he is one of only four or five foreigners who is a liveryman of the goldsmith's company and he was there for some you know for some social occasion and in a in a break he was sitting looking at an exhibit of pieces in the in the main hall and was uh, mentioning to the guy that was standing beside him about how remarkable the punch marks were and the stamps themselves. And so they got to chatting about the stamps and, you know, they were talking about how, how that technology's changed over the years. And so this guy looks at Eddie and he's like, do you want to go down and see how they're made? And it turns out that the guy he was chatting with is the guy responsible for making all their stamps. He was the guy in charge mm. of all that. So Eddie then got a tour of the, of the workshop where they were, uh, where they were making the stamps. And of course, as we mentioned last time, they've, they've gone from hand engraving the stamps to laser engraving them now. But uh, one of the things they had found, I guess they were doing some work after World War II on the building. And I think we mentioned in the last episode, this is the third building that's been on the site. And it's been there since the, I think around 1835. And during World War II, there was some bomb damage to the to one corner of the building. And so they were repairing it and they were modernizing the building a little bit. And I think they were trying to put in some extra toilets or something like that. So they needed to to put in some plumbing. And they broke through a wall and they found this storeroom that had been walled up. And based on the stuff that was in there, it had been walled up since the 1850s. So it wasn't something that had been done because of the war or anything like that. But it had been there, been bricked up for quite some time. And 
they had these collections of stamps that were in there, like original stamps from that time, which is rather unique because the stamps themselves are actually destroyed after they are finished for the year. So a few weeks ago, there was actually a post on Instagram from the uh, the saying office, and they were showing footage of them taking last year's hallmarks and uh, and grinding them off so that people can't use them anymore because you don't want people creating forgeries. But they found this storeroom full of all these all these um, stamp sets. So uh, this guy ended up giving Eddie a collection of number stamps that were remarkable. I guess when when they made these number stamps, they made a set of zero to nine for all of the numbers, which is a little funny because in hallmarking, there's no reason to use certain numbers. For instance, there's no hallmark that requires a number four or, you know, let's say a number one, for instance, there's no requirement for a number one. And so this guy ended up putting together a collection of hallmark stamps that can't, you know, that are never used for actual hallmarking. So Eddie can't use them for faking a, you know, an antique piece or whatever. And uh, he ended up giving him this collection. So he was showing me these, these stamps and it is remarkable the level of detail and the, the tiny size of some of these stamps. I was looking at a number six stamp with a 10X jeweler's loop and I could barely see the detail on the stamp and but you could still tell that it was a number six it was absolutely remarkable that something like that would have been hand carved in the early 1800s by somebody uh just a remarkable level of skill involved in making these stamps uh so that was that was a pretty amazing thing to see just how just how detailed these things were yeah they wouldn't have had electric lights or any sort of power tools nothing but their bare hands and the, the tools they crafted and the, the ambient light yeah. around them. And then whatever whatever mediocre optics were available at the time, because even though optics have been mm-hmm. around for centuries at that point, they certainly wouldn't have been as good as the optics we have available today. Yeah. Wow. Phenomenally impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just remarkable work. And then uh, the other thing that we saw while I was in his office that uh, that was impressive is a collection that uh, was given to him on the 30th anniversary of the Santa Fe Symposium. And a number of speakers, past and present, uh, ended up creating little pieces for him. And the the theme was uh, pearls of wisdom, uh, since that, of course, is what basically the point of the symposium was was sharing sharing your wisdom. So uh, there were you know dozens and dozens of these pieces by some of the best goldsmiths in the world making pieces for Eddie, uh, thanking him for you know for running the symposium over the years and. Some of those pieces were just remarkable. Looking at the detail work, the the quality of these pieces was just uh, was just unbelievable. So yeah, it's uh, you know he's he's obviously been in the industry for a long time, and and he's uh, he knows a lot of people. So it's he's been uh, he's been generous with people, and he's shared a lot of his knowledge and his time with people, and and in return, people have been uh, generous with him. So yeah, yeah, remarkable man, and and remarkable uh, house, which is. Uh, Hopefully I get a chance to go back and see it in detail with, without having 40 other people there competing for uh, for time on some of his tools. Well, it sounds like a, a fantastic treat, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was remarkable. One of the papers and talks that I really enjoyed hearing about was from Tim McRae and Matthew Chimene. Tim's out of, I think he's in uh, Maine, 
and uh, Mathieu is actually in Montreal, Canada. Tim McCrate, if you're in the jewelry world at all, you will be familiar with that name because he uh, started writing how-to books in the jewelry world many, many years ago. And that led to him actually becoming a publisher of, of books. So there are a lot of amazing jewelry books that have come out uh, that have been, you know, that have been either authored by Tim or published by Tim. So he he's a well-known name in the in the industry. And one of the books that he published a number of years ago was from Mathieu. And he had been studying the jewelry techniques of uh, jewelers in West Africa. So he was going to, you know, he would go to somewhere like Dakar and he would visit with these jewelers who are working in what we would consider to be relatively primitive conditions with a very, very small tool set and would be producing this absolutely remarkable work. And so they they ended up giving a talk on a project they started, I guess, four years ago now called the Toolbox Initiative. And the idea behind it is that they've been bringing over tools that have been donated by jewelers in North America, uh, tools that they no longer need, and they've been bringing them over to Africa with them, to West Africa with them, and donating them to some of the jewelers that they meet over there. And the the talk was really well done. Uh, there's actually a good video I'll, we'll link to that Rio Grande supported and uh, and helped produce, uh, showing some of the, the trips over there that they've done, uh, showing a couple of these jewelers working on things. Uh, Mathieu ended up uh, giving, uh, sort of giving a, a video or two of watching these guys work. And, you know, it's funny because I, I'm, I've got a pretty significant selection of tools available to me and and certainly some some of the more modern tools that are available uh, to a jeweler. So I have things like, uh, you know, I have a, a wide selection of hammers and pliers and things like that. And I have things like draw plates so that I can make silver, you know, silver or gold wire using this draw plate. I can draw it down to smaller and smaller sizes. Uh, but these guys don't necessarily have access to that. They might have two pairs of pliers. They might have a single hammer. Uh, they won't have a draw plate at all. You know, watching these guys work is just unbelievable. They are so fast and so good at what they do. Uh, Mathieu was saying that he he watched a guy take a, a silver ingot, and in 15 minutes he took a, he took his his one hammer and he drew that single ingot out into a consistent one millimeter wire. And I'm sitting there looking at him. I'm like, I can't do that with my draw plates. Like it takes me more than 15 minutes to make a, you know, to make a length of wire from an, a silver ingot. So uh, the work that these guys are doing was remarkable. Uh, it's beautiful work and uh, it's an interesting, interesting project that they're doing. So it's, we'll, we'll link to that. And it's, uh, if you happen to be a jeweler who has some extra tools that you don't need anymore, they've got a list of some things that, that certainly work better for them than others. So there's certain things that are, are more in demand than, uh, than other tools are. Uh, and you can donate old tools to them, preferably something that's in good condition. You don't want to send something that's broken or whatever, but you know, if you have some old tools sitting around, then you can do that. And if you don't happen to have any old jewelry tools around and you do want to contribute to it, you can donate money as well. And, uh, Rio Grande sells them tools at a significant discount, uh, to be able to bring over as well. So now yeah, it was, uh, it was a remarkable trip that uh, that they were showing off and and I say trip I mean multiple trips they they've been over there a number of times now 
yeah, just remarkable seeing the work these guys are doing. And again, especially the, you know, the quote unquote primitive conditions that they're in. I, I don't know that I could produce work, the work that they're doing in those conditions. And I'm certainly an experienced jeweler. So yeah, uh, just remarkable, remarkable trip and remarkable journey that they've been on. Sounds like a, a really worthwhile initiative. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and hopefully it, it continues going on. And if you're really interested in getting involved, it's also possible to, it's also possible to go over with them and visit some of these, uh, some of these jewelers and, and visit some of the towns that they're going into. So, so how about the elephant in the room? <laughs> I think you're talking about the award that I wanted to, uh, symposium, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, I ended up winning the uh, the very coveted French Elephant Award at the symposium this year, and uh, this is this is only something that that speakers can win. During the speakers' trip a number of years ago, uh, I think this goes back to 1999. Uh, the speakers had decided on a secret word that they were going to share amongst themselves, and everybody was supposed to try and weave the secret word into their talk in some sort of uh some sort of clever manner and so this has been a tradition for the last uh I, know, I guess the last 20 years now it's it's been going on so does this have anything at all to do with the the name of the award then because it's quite a peculiar name <laughs> yeah the french elephant award is a little bit odd and the name did did arise from this uh this particular challenge a number of years ago Stuart grice was giving a talk he he works for Hoover and Strong. They're uh, refiners and metal suppliers down in the states, and uh, comes from the UK and had misheard what the secret word was supposed to be. And uh, the secret word that year was fringe element. And uh, he, <laughs> yeah, you can see where this is going. <laughs> Stewart's up on stage and and he's misheard fringe element, and uh, so he he throws out French elephant. Which is what he thought that <laughs> he thought it was supposed to be. So the name stuck at that point, and uh, Stewart's talk has gone down in infamy. Although I noticed that he's uh, he's never actually won the award, uh, so clearly his uh, misuse of the award hadn't uh, didn't didn't end up winning it for him that year. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so every year we we try and we try and. Uh, weave in the uh, the secret word into our talks and some some people are better at it than others and some people completely forget this year we went on a visit to uh, the steelbender brewery in albuquerque new mexico uh, matt anderson who's uh, one of the speakers and uh, one of the folks at rio grande that, that helps organize this every year he's uh, he's very good friends with the owners at the steelbender brewery and so they took us on this great behind the scenes tour back there and and taught us all about their brewing technique and whatnot, some of the challenges they have being at altitude and, you know, some of the preferences in the area for, for how beer beer should taste. And uh, while we were on the trip, uh, we sort of started thinking about using bender as our word. So it came from the name steel bender. And so bender ended up being the, uh, the secret word for the trip this year. And uh, I was able to uh, weave it into my talk and I ended up needing to put a photo of my cufflinks that I was working on for my talk into the um, into the presentation, and I hadn't actually taken a photo of them yet, so I uh, managed to to uh, sneak in a sticker from Steelbender Brewery that uh, that they gave me during the talk. So oh, nicely done. Yeah. So for that, uh, I was I ended up winning the the French Elephant Award, and uh, I get to hold on to it for another year. 
And I was a, a little perplexed when you posted it online because it wasn't clear from the award that you'd won it because I didn't see your name or this year anywhere on the award. Well, let me tell you, John, every single expense was spared with this award. It is it is a low-quality plaque and a low-quality award, although the, the little elephant was actually hand-carved by one of the previous winners, so that that is actually quite a nice little touch. But uh, yes, the, the winners, um, they, they must engrave their own award if they want uh, their name on it, so have to engrave my own name on it. What can you do? Offers a nice opportunity for you to, to show off your craft. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that it's the the particular award, uh, as you can see, if you go and check out the, the show notes, you'll see the award. It's it's running out of space. Uh, there's not a lot of room on there right now for, uh, for my name. So I'm going to have to figure out some way of expanding the plaque a little bit, I think, and, um, and making the, making a little bit more room for, winner's names so that i can put my own name on there and uh, hopefully have some space for future winners we'll make a, a miniature pen and perch up behind the ear of the <laughs> elephants with your name and, and the year on it yeah, but that doesn't help the next person along <laughs> well it could end up like the stanley cup and you just keep adding new new bases to the bottom of it adding adding new rows I, i'm thinking about extending the upright so that it, it keeps sort of pushing up and up and up so we'll see uh we'll see what i come up with but uh Yes, yeah, so I am the uh, the coveted winner of the uh, of the award this year, and and it stays in Canada, much to uh, the chagrin of the people who were awarding it this year. Uh, Chris Plouffe, who uh, was one of the the judges this year, he was unhappy that it uh, that it went back to Canada last year. Charles Luton Brain won it, so Chris didn't want to send it back up to Canada, but that's where it's staying for now. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>